Revelation 18.8. We won't turn there because of time. And then this chapter, as in many chapters, there is a theme that tends to override uh, the other themes uh, in it. And this is the same theme as we had last week. Last week there were, I counted seven maybe, verses that are regarding governance and uh, maxims and and rules, uh, wisdom for governing. And again, this week we have... I have another seven, and I'm going to go through, do something dangerous. I'm going to read just those uh, first, and then we will go back through and skip over them. So, Diane, you keep an eye on me. Make sure I don't miss any verses. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Verse 4, by justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. Seven. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. Scoffers, verse 8, set a city aflame, but the wise will turn away wrath. 12, if a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. The poor man and the oppressor meet together. Yahweh gives light to the eyes of both. 14, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. Now skip down to 25 and 26. They go together, they're companions. And notice the the parallels of the parallels. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in Yahweh is safe. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from Yahweh that a man gets justice. So the first phrase in both verses talk about man trusting man, seeking uh, deliverance from your ruler. But the second half says the place of true uh, justice, true safety is in Yahweh. And thus are the seven verses I picked out as particular verses for uh, those who govern. There are also uh, a couple of verses. This is always uh, good. They're scattered throughout uh, the Proverbs. The Proverbs are a good child-rearing manual. Uh, If you're raising kids or grandkids, working with grandkids, um, keep the Proverbs in your mind and, and before you. Verse 15, the rod and reproof. Two things. Rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Verse 17, discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. So if not for their sakes, do it for your own heart's sake. Your son may give you rest. Okay, let's back, circle back to verse Three, he who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. This reminds us, of course, of the parable of the uh, younger and the elder brother. Most people call it the parable of the prodigal son, but it was actually spoken to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the elder brother, the one who trusted in his own works for his righteousness uh, before his dad. And it was the younger son who squandered uh, his uh, father's wealth on prostitutes and riotous living. We need to remember this. We're called to liberty, but it's liberty not to be used as an opportunity to indulge our flesh. Verse 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Remember that whenever someone compliments you. An evil man is ensnared in his transgression, but a righteous man sings and rejoices. Verse 9, if a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, 
but a wise man quietly holds it back. In other words, the fool, King James says, utters all his mind. He has no delight except to tell you what's going on in his mind. Uh, If you get a chance, check out chapter 18, uh, verse 2. Now we jump down to 16. When the wicked increase, transgression increases. But the righteous will look upon their downfall. I uh, wavered on whether to add that one to the governance <laughs> category of Proverbs. You can see why. When there is, verse 18, when there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. That was starkly, uh, literally fulfilled when Moses was on the mount. The people cast off all restraint. They had a idolatrous orgy going on when Moses uh, came down. And so you see that uh, fulfilled there very literally. But again, um, we see it uh, everywhere in, in, in civil life. And we see it in our own hearts. We don't keep the law in front of our minds. We're not in the scriptures uh, regularly, daily, constantly. Then we begin to cast off restraint because our lusts uh, will overpower us. We have only uh, the grace of God and the word of God to uh, restrain us. 19, by mere words, a servant is not disciplined for though he understands He will not respond. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope of a fool than for him. Where did we hear that before? More hope for a fool than for a certain type of person. Anybody remember? It was last week. It was the the man who is uh, wise in his own eyes. There's more hope of a fool than for him. And we tied that with the sluggard. He has seven reasons he can out-argue you for why he shouldn't work. (laughs) He's wise in his own eyes. And so we see that uh, uh, wisdom, uh, self-proclaimed wisdom or self-taught wisdom, and the man goes hand-in-hand with a man who is hasty in his words. It's hard to get a word in edgewise in a conversation with such a one. Whoever, from 21, whoever pampers his servant from childhood will in the end find him his heir. Now you're probably wondering if you have uh, the NAS, maybe you will read, will find him rebellious. Um, many of the translations have will become his heir or, or a son such as the King James, New King James, American Standard. But the NIV has insolent. He will become insolent. The New Living Translation has rebel. Um, living or legacy standard and the Christian standard have arrogant. So when you, when you run across a word like that, you say, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll look the word up and find out how it's used in other passages. Well, that didn't. That backfired because this is the only place (laughs) that that Hebrew word occurs. So uh, there you go. Just consult all the translations and uh, you're on your own after that, I guess. That's not very good advice. But um, 22, a man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. Uh, last week in verse chapter 28, we saw that pride stirs up strife. Here we have anger stirring up strife. So show me an angry man or woman, and I will show you a proud man or woman. That's, what, uh, that's where it comes from. One's pride, 23, one's pride brings him low. But he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. 
Keep that in mind when you're proud and angry. It's going to bring you low. <laughs> and it reminds us of uh, James' words, to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. 24, the partner of a thief hates his own life. He hears the curse but discloses nothing. And finally, verse 27, an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. Again, take your Trinity hymn books and turn to the familiar hymn 402, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. 402 in the Trinity hymn book. Stand together as we sing this. Turn over your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. This past week, this is a chapter that I have been setting on and reading over and over again in my own time with God. And to a degree, though I had preached through this some time ago, I had forgotten the wealth of material that is found in, in Hebrews chapter 3. I don't know if I've forgotten it, but I just haven't considered it uh, lately. Just the wealth that's here. As you come to chapter 13 of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews has just ended the contrast between 
Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And what a wonderful thing it is to be a part of that unshakable kingdom of God and being a part of Mount Zion. And we, and we read at the end of Hebrews 12 in verse 28, Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence in awe. In, in light of what we have in Christ, we ought to be a people whose lives mark out our gratitude to God for being a part of this wonderful kingdom. And therefore, our lives should be a sacrifice to God that is, the word here is called acceptable. It could be called a pleasing sacrifice to God in the way that we live. We do not live our lives as a sacrifice to God in order to get to heaven. We live our lives as a sacrifice to God in gratitude to Him because of what we have in His Son through which we are able to go to heaven. And so the writer of Hebrews gives us that challenge. Is your life as Paul said, a living sacrifice which is pleasing to God. When you come to chapter 13, it's interesting to note that he ends this chapter with the same idea, with the same challenge. If you go to verse 20 and 21, we read these words, Now the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, which even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the writer of Hebrews comes to the end of this section, and again, he places that challenge before the people of God. That our lives would be that which is pleasing in His sight. So, we have these two bookends from chapter 12 and verse 28, and Hebrews 13 and verse 21. And the bookends are a challenge to us to live our lives pleasing to God. What does that look like? What does a life look like that is pleasing to God? Answer? If you read Hebrews 13.1 through 13.21, he tells us, and, and that's the thing that I appreciated as I was reading through that this week. You, you want to live a life that is pleasing, a sacrifice that is accepted by God? Well, do this. Love one another. Love each other. Do you want to have a life that is a sacrifice that's pleasing to God? Then do this. Practice hospitality. Don't neglect hospitality. Do you want to live a life that is pleasing to God? Remember the prisoners and the ill-treated. Do you remember when we went through this? Many... I don't know if everything happened last year to me, but I think it's been three or four years. Right. And, 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 and I was convicted. Do, do we really pray for the prisoners? That's why on Wednesday night we pray for the persecuted church. It came when we were looking at this because I want us to live a life that is pleasing and acceptable to God. So we pray for the prisoners. 
You want to live a life that is pleasing to God, acceptable to Him? Then hold marriage in honor. Hold marriage in honor. We, we read here that marriage is to be honorable. It, it's to be treasured. If I could only get this application across to couples, your marriage should not be a burden. It is that which you ought to treasure. You ought to treasure. This isn't my sermon, but I'm going to get carried away here in a minute. You ought to treasure one another. You ought to consider this institution that God has given to us as that which is precious, precious, not defiling the married bed. That's a a sacrifice that would be well-pleasing to God. And then we come to the next one, where we read these words, verse 5, and this is where I'm going to land. If you were wondering, you probably thought I was hovering too long, but but I'm getting ready to come in for a landing. All right. Verse 5. And make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will men do to me? And, I mean, part of it, I was going to, I thought this is, I know I just preached on all this however many years ago it was, but I thought this would be a wonderful sermon. And, and, And it touches many issues that need to be touched in our day that as believers we might be sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And one of the areas, and I'm just going to touch on this one, this isn't going to be a series, I don't think, but it's that of being content. Being content. And I want to open up this commandment in two ways. First of all, I want you to consider with me the admonition. The admonition. And then the reason. So two simple points, the admonition and the reason. And the writer here in these verses sets before us a life that is pleasing to God by declaring these these two commandments before his readers. And the two commandments or the admonitions are this. First of all, keep your life free from the love of money. Or, as the writer of Hebrews says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. The word character there means your matter of life. How you live. It is your life's conduct. It is the real you. When when someone take away all the veneer... Take away all the things that you try to hide behind. When it's taken away, what does your life look like? What's the driving force of your life? Someone has said, reputation is what others think you are. Character is what God knows you are. Reputation is what others think you are. Your character is what God knows you are. When it becomes our way of life, when, it, when, it, when we look at who we really are, the writer of Hebrews says, you're to be kept from the love of money. This admonition is a call to sincerely consider what it is that drives you. What what are the most important things in, in your life? Too many professing Christians 
can find that they are living a life that is driven. It's driven by their possessions. It's driven by what they have. It's driven by their wealth. That's what their life is all about. Now, why, why did the writer of Hebrews give this word of admonition? Why, why would he give such warning? Well, certainly, we can, we can all be enticed by the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches, of, of, how, much, of how much we have. My, I was with my siblings this past week, and I have an older brother who there's a lot of good common grace in him. I, I do not know him to be a Christian but it was just interesting as we were talking about what we do and how we spend our day. And somebody mentioned watching something on TV. Something, I forget what even the conversation was all about. And he said, you know, and, and my older brother was always the cool sibling, if I can say that, you know. And he says, I, I've become a nerd. And we all looked at him, what do you mean you've become a nerd? I don't spend my evenings watching television anymore. I spend my evenings looking at the stock market, checking prices, and, and, and every day I, I, I got the paper, and I, I, that's what I do in the evenings. I, I see how much money I'm making, and, and, and what, what, or if I'm losing, and so forth. And, and that's the way some people live. It's, it's about what I can gain, what I can possess, what I have. So we can all be enticed by the deceitfulness of riches. However, for the original readers, they seem to have experienced a, a time of real persecution se several years back. If you look over to chapter 10, chapter 10 in verse 32, the writer of Hebrews says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproach and tribulation, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. You see, they, they went through a, a time of, of real persecution. And perhaps in light of the previous experience, there arose a fear that they were about to lose everything again. They, they were fearful that they were, they, were, they were going to be without anything once again. And the temptation would be to do whatever they had to do in order to keep what they had. They didn't want to go broke again. Keeping a grip on what you have may bring you to the place of loving your possessions. Living your life in such a way that it is marked by what you possess. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't let that happen. Do not fall prey to the love of money and possessions, that that becomes the central focus of your life. Realize these things will pass away. And they ought not to be the priority of your life. So that's the first admonition. Keep your life free from the love of money. And the second admonition is this. Be content with what you have. The term content means sufficiency. Sufficiency. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his little book, he's got a little book, I think Banner of Truth publishes it, called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he defines contentment as this. That's the sweet inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise, 
fatherly disposal of every condition. Did you get all that? It's a sweet calmness. A gracious frame which submits to and delights in God's wise, fatherly disposal of every condition. Whatever God brings into my life, if I look at the stock market and it's falling, I still have a calmness. That's not easy to do. Especially when you're my age. Because somebody comes along and whispers in my ear, don't worry about it, just ride it out. And I have to say, I don't have that much time to ride. If I was 25, I can ride it out. At 67, my ride may come to an end so quickly. But there's a calmness, a peace that one can have that God is still in control. John Owen writes, this is a longer definition, contentment is a gracious frame or disposition of mind quiet and composed without complaining or repining at God's providential Disposal of our outward concern to without envy at the more prosperous conditions of others. Three, without fears and anxieties and cares about future supplies. And four, without desire and design of those things which are more plentiful which a more plentiful condition than what we are in would supply with us, us with. So, with a desire and a design of those things which are which a more plenteous condition than what we are in would supply us with. So we're not setting our time to connive or looking for a get-rich-quick scheme or something like that. So it, a contentment finds its foundation upon the sovereignty of God without complaining or grumbling about my present condition, without envying the prosperity of others, without fearing or doubting the goodness of God about the future. With it, without desiring more of this world's good in order to indulge myself. That's contentment. You get the, Without complaining, without envying, without fearing, without seeking to desire to indulge myself. That's to live with contentment. We find ourselves discontented in our position, in our condition, in our possessions, and, and when we find ourselves discontented and question God's wisdom or God's power or His goodness, then we become very discontent. I don't, I don't like where I am now. I, I wish I had more. I will do whatever I have to do to get more. If God was wise, He would do things differently. If God was powerful, He he would bring these things to pass. If God was good, this wouldn't be happening. That's a discontented spirit. And the writer of Hebrews says to us that we need to be content with what you have doesn't mean you shouldn't try to better yourself. It, it, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't change anything or if you have the wherewithal to change anything in your life, you shouldn't. But, but it simply means this isn't going to be the driving force of my life. And so he says here, be content with what you have. Don't love money. That's the admonitions. But then he goes on and he tells us the reason for these admonitions. 
the reason for them. It's interesting that the, the writer doesn't have to tell us. I mean, this is God's word, and he says, Do not be guilty of the love of money and be content with what's those, thing, those things that you have. He could have left it there. Now, you may have said, But why? You know, we have that children tendency in this, don't we? Why? And at the end of the day, we, God could say, Because I said to. But, but the author gives us the reasons. He gives us two arguments as to why you should not live a life that's ran by a love of money and discontentment. And the first reason he gives is we have the sure word of God. We have the sure word of God. Notice what it says there in verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he himself said... Four. This is the reason. He himself said, I will never desert you and I will never forsake you. This is what God said. I will always be with you. It's a quote that is spoken about God. God himself. The exact wording of this text is not found in one text of Scripture, but it's found in several texts of Scripture. I will never leave you or forsake you. We don't look to one passage, but there are several passages in which this reality is set before us. Genesis 28 and verse 15, we have Jacob's dream. And there we read, For behold, I am with you, I will keep you wherever you go. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31 in verse 8, Moses is speaking to Joshua. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Joshua 1 in verse 5, the Lord says to Joshua, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. God's promised that he would never lose his grip on them. And the writer of Hebrews makes the point that such a promise is made at some point in time in the past and it has not been retracted or reversed. It's still in effect. Though he said it in the past, it's still true. It's like, who was it, Tibia and uh, Fiddler on the Roof? You know, which it, what Tibia does, I do not endorse. But remember, there's that point where he looks at his wife, and then he said, do you love me? And he's like, oh, I love you, or whatever it else is. And, and then when they end up with this discussion, you know, uh, Tibia says something like, listen, I love you, and if it ever changes, I'll let you know. So in other words, don't, don't be asking me every day, do you love me? I, I, I'll let you know if it changes. So if you don't hear it's changed, then I still love you and I don't need to say that. Now, I do not recommend that, gentlemen. I've heard of some men who say that to their wives. I love you. If it changes, I'll let you know. So let's just live our lives without me telling you that I love you because it hasn't changed. Not a good romantic um, statement. But with God, he's saying that here. I've said in the past, and it will not change. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's a promise that is true all the way to the end. So the argument for your contentment is the reality that you have something that is far better than anything in this world could offer you. You've got something better than anything in this world. And you know what that is? You have me. That's what God is saying. You have me. And if you really believe the promises to be true, and that God will be continually your help, and He will continually sustain you 
then what in the world makes you discontent with what God has provided? Why are you discontent if God promises He'll never leave you, He will take care of you? Why are you discontent? So there's reason number one. Because we have God's Word. I will never leave you. And reason number two, we have the certainty of hope. We have the certainty of hope. He says here, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. This is a quote from Psalm 118. The truth of the promises God has given to us is a confidence. It is a courage to proclaim what the, the psalmist has stated. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We can say continually this very reality. And that brings us courage. In claiming Jehovah is my helper, what great courage that gives to us. And we're able to declare to those around us that the Almighty One, the living God, the omnipotent God, the God of gods and Lord of lords, He is my personal helper. Does that give you confidence? And courage? God is my helper. Whatever in this world may come against me, whatever may oppose my God here upon this earth, I do not need to be afraid. God will be my helper. I do not have to be apprehensive or uneasy or terrified. If God is my helper, what do I have to fear? That's a rhetorical question. You know what a rhetorical question is. It's a question that I ask that we all know the answer. Nothing! Nothing! It was John Knox, the Scottish reformer, who fearlessly stood his ground against frightening opposition. And he said, he said these words, a man with God is always in the majority. A man with God is always in the majority. And so, what does this life look like that is a pleasing sacrifice to God? Well, here's one area. It's a life not taken up with material possessions, that that becomes our focus, that becomes uh, the, our motivation for everything we do. How can I pile up more and more and more? We, we would be kept from the love of money. I hope I don't need to say it. I'll say it, but I hope I don't need to say it. He's not saying you shouldn't have money. He's not saying you shouldn't have a bank account. He's, he's not saying you, you shouldn't have. But he's saying you've become a lover of that. You've become more passionate about what you have and, 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 and how you're going to keep it than you have about your relationship to God and how you're going to pursue Him. That's what that life looks like. When you're, when you're more taken up with things than you are with your God. When you're more upset when the Tao drops than you are when men blaspheme your God.
When you're more upset because someone drives a nicer car than you do, than you are in the pursuit of godliness in your own life. And we can all be caught up in that. And the Bible says, don't you become a lover of money. But be content. As believers, as believers, we're the last people in the world who, who ought to live a life of terror. A life that is on the brink of being so overwhelmed, you, you don't know what to do. But we ought to find our contentment in Almighty God. And, and which is better? The fact that my bank account may have... It's mine. It's probably... If i got $100 in there, good. But the fact that it has thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars or the fact that I've got a God who will never leave me. Which is more valuable to you? And so may God help us to have lives that are marked by these things as a sacrifice that is pleasing in His sight. Let's pray. Father, we pray that these things would be true in our lives. That our lives would be marked out by these various examples. That, that we have a, a love for one another. That we love to give ourselves to hospitality. To even entertain strangers. That, that we remember those who are in the midst of real persecution. And that, Father, we would honor marriage and find that to be very precious. And then, Father, that we would be content keep us from the love of money. We would confess that oftentimes we are taken up with what we have more than we're taken up with who You are. We're more concerned that we're surrounded by all the latest gadgets and, and all the latest things than we are concerned about a God who will never leave us or forsake us. Father, forgive us. And we pray that our lives would be marked by a contentment, by a satisfaction, knowing that our God does all things well and that He will be our continual helper as we live in this world. So, Father, we again would ask that these things wouldn't just be abstract ideas that we hear about and then go away and forget what we've heard. But with Your help and with the work of the Spirit, these things would truly mark our lives. And in that way, You would be glorified. Help us, we pray, as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In closing, let's take the Trinity hymn book, turning to 548. 548, more love to Thee, O Christ, more love to to the five four eight. Let's stand together as we sing.
doctor's expecting continued improvement. So just continue to pray for them as they make their way down to Adams. You are dismissed. <laughs>